This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Emeritus Professor of Politics from La Trobe University, Judith Brett, joined me in the studio to talk about her book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. And then finally, Associate Professor Michelle Arrow, who is an expert in modern history at Macquarie University, joined me on the phone to talk about her book, The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM and uh, I feel like I'm fairly awake, hopefully awake enough to talk about some big news in federal politics with the wonderful Ben Eltham who joins me on the phone right now. Hey there, Ben. Morning, Amy. How are you? Good morning. Pretty good, pretty good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Yep, yep. Now, let's get into some big news that's um, happening in federal politics. I guess I'll start with the most recent, given that it's just broken, which is that Julian Burnside QC has been announced as the candidate for the Greens in the seat of Kuyong at the next federal election. Now, that's a pretty big development on many fronts, um, one particularly because the Greens have looped in such a quality person in terms of his experience um, and, and advocacy already in this space. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on this particular development, Ben? Well, yeah, it is, it's a good win for the Greens to secure a candidate of the stature of Burnside, uh, obviously a top barrister and no one for his tireless work advocating for asylum seekers and refugees. Uh, but I think it's still a very much a long-shot candidacy for Burnside. Uh, it's going to be quite difficult for him to win the seat. Um, you know, really, it's a safe Conservative seat. So I think, you know, it, it will be an enjoyable candidacy for him, I think. And, you know, I think he'll get a lot of votes, but uh, I can't see him winning. Well, the interesting thing with this seat, Ben, is that there's now two alternative candidates that are very high profile and uh, the Oliver Yates who was a Liberal member up until recently has become the independent candidate in that seat and was the CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So in a sense uh, Josh Frydenberg's vote may be split by quite a, a significant amount given that we've got now two other high profile candidates in addition to Josh Frydenberg who is the sitting member so it certainly does create a bit more of a chance for some surprising developments to occur given that we were surprised in the state election Yeah maybe yes maybe no I mean we have preferential voting in Australia so ultimately you'd expect a lot of the preferences to return to Frydenberg particularly from Oliver Yates so you know I think we need to be cautious about saying just because there's extra candidates in the horse race that um, it's necessarily going to be a close race. Well, it obviously depends where the preference deals are made on that issue as well and also where people put their own preferences. Well, Kuyong voters are pretty intelligent people. I think they'll probably do their own preferencing on the whole. So, yeah, I mean, there's always a lot of argy-bargy around preferences in the run-up to elections. Uh, I think rather too much is made of preferencing deals myself. Well, it's probably more important in the upper house than the lower house. Well, it's certainly more important in the upper house because of the way that the preferential voting works in the upper house. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, people have the ability to to number only a couple of boxes in the upper house as opposed to the entire big ballot. 
Indeed. Now, Ben, let's go to another big development over the weekend, which saw Stephen Chobo and also Christopher Pine resign and or announce they're resigning, that they won't be recontesting their seats uh, at the next election and of course Christopher Pine saying that he didn't want an unnecessary by-election um, pres- and it seems like these two uh, former ministers, one of them and an actual minister well, Steve Chobo has stepped down from his defence industry portfolio and we saw uh, an, a female being put in his place which was uh, a- another big development and Scott Morrison touting his credentials now as the Prime Minister who has the most women in Cabinet ever um, so a lot has happened this weekend. Um, what do you think uh, this signals when we've seen five uh, cabinet ministers resign and say they will not be contesting the next election? Oh, it just signals more chaos in the Morrison government, really. I mean, they really are in their death throes now and they've got experienced ministers, I mean, very experienced ministers in the case of Christopher Pine, who's been there seemingly forever. Uh, Joe Bowe was a, a leading light of the Gold Coast nationals and liberals up there in Queensland. Uh, he's not that well known down here, but, you know, he was a solid performer and managed to stay out of trouble, which is saying quite a bit for the Morrison government. So um, both of those are big losses, you know, and you've got to ask yourself why are these people, these senior politicians, leaving the government? And you have to say the reason is because they think the government's going to lose. Exactly. The writing's on the wall. And uh, talking about unnecessary by-elections suggests that uh, people can tell that they're not going to win the next election and they don't want to all resign and create multiple by-elections after the result. So uh, it'd be interesting to see internal Liberal Party polling at the moment. Obviously, things can change and they're hoping that they will with the April budget, Uh, but things will be interesting. We've seen some developments on the policy front and we mentioned last week climate change. The Liberals have given a cursory nod to climate change because they are threatened in multiple seats by independents who are campaigning on climate change and some of the interesting parts or aspects of the modelling that they've put out um, in terms of the emissions that will be reduced suggests that they are allowing for certain accounting um, trickery to be included in their um, their methods and and what their strategy will be to actually meet our Paris target. Can you explain um, a bit about what it is that this accounting trick um, that we're all referring to, particularly Senator Tim Storer has been raising this quite frequently and is uh, not particularly impressed? Yeah, that's right, Amy. So we saw a little bit of the detail of the Coalition's climate package There'd been a big announcement. We talked a bit about it last week. Um, A few billion dollars thrown at a reheat of direct action. Uh, And they also revealed their plans for how they say they're going to meet Australia's Paris climate commitments. Commitments, by the way, that, of course, we're not on track to meet emissions currently growing, despite what the government says. Um, And one of the most interesting aspects of that detail was that they revealed that they're planning to use what are known as carryover credits. Now, these are sort of, these are an accounting trick, as you mentioned. Basically, these are uh, credits, if you like, carbon credits that have been banked from our previous uh, Kyoto commitments. 
enabling us supposedly to count them towards our Paris climate reduction targets. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that, firstly, they're not real reductions in carbon emissions. Uh, Secondly, there's a whole bunch of stuff to do with Australia's Kyoto commitments, which mean that we had very, very generous targets, the most generous, really, of any industrialised nation. So we weren't really pulling our weight in that period. And thirdly, there's a lot of doubt in international, uh, in terms of the, the treaty, the Paris Treaty itself, about whether we're allowed to use these carryover credits. Uh, anyway, looking at it, it's basically cheating, right? Like, so the point is to reduce our emissions. And you can't just say that because we exceeded our targets for a previous period of reductions that somehow we're entitled to use that for the next period of reductions. I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense anyway you look at it. No, it doesn't. And uh, researcher from Melbourne Uni, Dylan McConnell, has put together a very handy graph, which I'll retweet. But um, he shows that basically this accounting trick amounts for about half of the emissions reductions that we need to make to meet the Paris target and another roughly 15% will go down to technology improvements that occur outside of government. So it seems like um, we are essentially barely doing our fair share. Well, we're not doing our fair share, Amy. Um, let's remember that Australia's mandated Paris reduction of 26 to 28% by 2030, that's not enough either. Okay, the scientists are telling us we've got to move as rapidly to decarbonisation as possible. We've got to take as much carbon out of the atmosphere as we possibly can. And here we've got the government fudging the figures, basically using every trick in the book to try and get out of reducing carbon emissions. And continuing to lie about Australia's actual emissions trajectory. They keep saying that our emissions are going down when, of course, government's own figures tell us that they're going up. Exactly. And uh, we saw Angus Taylor, the energy minister, over the weekend on Insiders and Barry Cassidy asking about our emissions. And as we mentioned last week, uh, we had Melissa Price, the environment minister, saying that emissions were going down. We saw Angus Taylor saying that our emissions are going down as well. And uh, it seems like they are referring to the three months that were last accounted for as opposed to the entire year's trajectory which has been going down. Um, So we're getting into this really argy-bargy. We are going up um, and it's very clearly going up and yet we have two cabinet ministers coming out to say the direct opposite. Yeah, they're lying, Amy. There's really no way to sugarcoat it. It's actually outrageous. I mean, this is the biggest public policy issue of the 21st century, and the government is lying through their back teeth. It's disgraceful. It is disgraceful, and uh, we're seeing lying continue. And another example of that is uh, the government, Scott Morrison, has been um, going out doing... He did a tour of Queensland, as you may know. We discussed the bus, which was obviously a major feature. And uh, Scott Morrison pledged to create 1.25 million jobs. And apparently, because an FOI, Freedom of Information Request, was put in, uh, Treasury revealed that 
they have no documents or modelling relating to the announcement Scott Morrison made on the 29th of January. So apparently these jobs are going to appear out of nowhere with no particular plan and no reason why we even have a $1.25 million figure. Well, I think this is pretty much par for the course for the Morrison government. When in doubt, make it up. Uh, you know, the, the, if the economy grows, then jobs will be created. Uh, but the economy is actually slowing at the moment. And, you know, it's very hard for us to say that jobs will be created five years from now as a result of a policy that the government hasn't even announced. That's exactly true. And, uh, I just don't know what else to say. I know, I know. It's um, a little bit gobsmacking, isn't it? <laughs> There's not a lot to talk about when there isn't substance. Yeah, I mean, I think this shows you where the Morrison government's at. I mean, they're flailing around. There's internal chaos. They're losing some of their most experienced people, not just parliamentarians, but staffers. And so, you know, basically, they're just trying to fake it till they make it. And Morrison's entire strategy, really, is to throw out as as much misinformation, disinformation, distortions and lies as he can in the hope that that gets him through to election day and maybe, by some miracle, he wins. Mm. Now, um, one of the other issues that we saw the Parliament vote on at the end of the sitting week, uh, about a week or so ago, was on the prospect of a disability royal commission and uh, that did pass in terms of the Parliament's intent to establish one, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be established uh, requires government to decide to create a term of terms of reference uh, and interestingly we see a bit of um, back and forth between Labor and the Liberal Party on this uh, the Liberal Party wants to see the state governments chip in and provide some funding for this Royal Commission which got Scott Morrison says should be a similar size and standing to the one we saw um, into institutional child sexual abuse and that was $373 million over five years. Labor um, hasn't committed that level yet, um, but they are saying that the, the federal government should fund all of that. Uh, what, where, what do you think they should be doing and should they be establishing it now or should they wait until after the election? Oh, no, they should establish it because there's a clear need to establish it. Uh, We know that there's terrible things going on in this sector. Uh, We've known that for years, and that's why disability advocates have been demanding a Royal Commission to try and get to the bottom of these abuses and these crimes. So um, there is something of an argument for the states chipping in because undoubtedly a lot of the abuse has occurred within state institutions, state and territory institutions. So perhaps there is an argument that they should bear some of the burden. But realistically, the Commonwealth is the top level of government. It's the level of government with the most money. And if we want to get on with this, then the Commonwealth is the logical federal body to do it. Yes, and they can obviously establish it and seek contributions later if they so choose. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and hope you have a good week. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. That was Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joined me from a what sounds like a train station uh, in Melbourne heading off to uni to teach all those bright young and mature age university students things about uh, culture, I believe. 
Um, I'm really delighted now to have with me in the studio Judith Brett, who is an Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, and um, she's the author of many books. One that I know of well is The Enigmatic Mr Deacon, which won the 2018 National Biography Award and was shortlisted for many, many other awards. And uh, I interviewed Judith on the phone about that book last year, and I'm now very excited to bring her back and into the studio, which is even better, to talk about this new book that she has written, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting, and it's out through text publishing. Hi there, Judith. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you, and great to talk more about Australia's political history, which is fascinating and uh, pretty much not talked about all that often except in historical academic circles and particularly not this topic which um you know i'm guessing anthony green probably has a chat over a a drink at a barbecue about compulsory voting but perhaps not many others would well there's a fair bit of um literature by academic political scientists but it's fairly dry Mm. it's um or it's in textbooks for politics 101 Yes, yes. It certainly doesn't bring to life the characters that are part of this story and also the debates which are fascinating and that you draw out in um, the primary evidence, like Hansard, for example, in newspapers that um, really highlighted the interesting viewpoints that men and women had and were putting at the earliest points in Australia's um, settler history. So we see in the 19th century um, some really interesting thinkers and uh, Australia drawing on particularly political philosophy that was coming over from Britain. And I was really interested um, to read those references to the political philosophers that you cite, um, because it's not often you talk about political philosophy except in my philosophy classes so um, I thought that was great and I didn't realize that we were influenced by those British thinkers could you share with us a little bit about that because you highlight that as being a key difference as to why Australia developed in a certain way and why America developed in a certain way yes well what I argue I mean when I was asked to do this book on compulsory voting it was Michael Haywood's idea because he thought nobody much knew why we had compulsory voting I thought that it needed to be put into a larger context, that if we just looked at the history of compulsory voting, there wasn't really a book in that, but that also to understand it, we had to understand the sort of longer political debates and the cultural political culture that the settlers had brought. And Jeremy Bentham, um, who was... His heyday was the early 19th century, was a big influence on a lot of the people. Now, Jeremy Bentham is probably best known for the phrase, you know, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. He was a utilitarian. Um, That is, he believed that you could judge um, the usefulness of of political ideas by... Well, you you looked at their usefulness. That's how you judged their worth. Um, And in that sense, he was a Democrat... Um, and it was a time when, uh, in the early 19th century, when the um, institutions of parliament in Britain were pretty on the nose. There was a fair bit of corruption. They weren't. They were elect, elected by a very small group of wealthy people, and there was a lot of people thinking about how to 
make it more democratic. And so a lot of the people who then come to Australia are influenced by those debates and they bring a, a sort of a commitment to democracy really with them. Yes, they do. And um, interestingly, you write that Bentham argued that rights are created by law, um, that there weren't natural or divinely given rights which precede government. So yes. governments create laws and rights. And um, and then that he also believed that government should be guided by what you've discussed as utility. And that means the benefit for the majority yes. or the most people and also the least harm. Yes. So the, the, what I was trying to do there was to really try to explain to Australians why our political culture is really different from that of the United States. The United States political institutions really come out of the 18th century. They have a strong natural rights tradition that, that government is created by sovereign individuals who give over some of their rights to the government, but that rights, in a sense, are natural rights, whereas Bentham mm. rejects that and says it's government that that creates the rights. Yes, and you reference um, John Locke, who was an English philosopher, and his work, The Two Treatises of Government, and that particular um, philosophy influencing the Americans. Yes, social contract theory, which is that, in a way free rights-bearing individuals come together to form a society and make a contract, if you like, with the government that the government will provide them with certain benefits like mainly protection um, against external threats, a sort of law and order deal that they make. Uh, but what I argue is that, that that social contract theory didn't actually have much purchase amongst the people who um, come to Australia in the, in the 19th century. And Australians don't distrust the government in their core in the way Americans do, or many Americans. Yes, that's absolutely true. And the role of government, um, Australians were really open to creating a, a big role for government for a range of reasons that you highlight as well. Um, particularly what was interesting to me was the idea around taxation and the fact that um, really income tax came along quite late in the piece mm. compared to other taxes. And that's why or one of the reasons why people were so open to government providing for them. Yes, and also Australia was... Um, nowhere near as fertile a country as America, not as easy to settle. If you were going to, you know, open up the Wimmera for settlement, which, the, you know, the colonial Victorian government did in the late 19th century, it was only going to be possible for people to make a living there if governments provided transport infrastructure, the irrigation schemes. I mean, Mildura wouldn't exist without governments having funded, you know, the, the irrigation and, or, or established the wherewithal for that. So in Australians, um, firstly the British government and then later the colonial governments who were making money out of land sales and also out of tariffs provided a lot of benefits for Australia. And so Australians saw the government as something that provided benefits for them on the whole. Yes. And so um, what was really interesting is that it's not just compulsory voting, as is described in the title, that Australia, you know, f grabs onto and makes law um, as part of our electoral system, but there are a whole range of innovations That's that right. Australia has quite uniquely to most other nations in the world. And um, you quote Louise 
Overacker, who said no modern democracy has shown greater readiness to experiment with various electoral methods than Australia. And you say it was a laboratory for new ideas about democracy and new methods of achieving them. So if we talk about, first of all, who qualifies to vote um, and the difference between uh, Australia and, say, the UK and also how it evolved in Australia because it certainly continued to change as Mm. the years went on. But who initially had the right to vote in Australia? Well, there weren't elections for quite a long time, so we don't start really getting elections till the 1840s. And at that stage, it's property... You know, you have to have property of a certain amount or to rent property because a lot of people you know were quite well off people rented but it's in the by the end of the 1850s we've got manhood suffrage certainly in New South Wales and Victoria and South Australia now that means that all men over 21 without serious there's some restrictions on it around re- treason and and criminal charges but can vote now that doesn't come in in Great Britain until after the First World War, 1918. I mean, it's an astonishing, like, earliness on Australia or lateness on the part of Britain, whichever way you want to see it. So we get we get that now. When we get that, they, the um, there's we also at that point there's there'd already been secret ballots in the United States, but they were not that secret in that the political parties tended to hand out. Uh, little voting slips to people and they'd be, if they were, you know, Liberal, they'd be blue and if they were Labor, they'd be red. So people could see what colour voting slip you were bringing. And what Australia invented, which really made the secret ballot secret, was that the, the what we now think of as the ballot paper, that when you as the voter turn up to vote, the polling clerk gives you a ballot paper. Whereas before, either in England, you used to say aloud who you were voting for, everybody knew, or you wrote it on a piece of paper and it was put into a book. So we we invented the ballot paper. It was probably invented about the same time in South Australia and in Victoria. Now, once we'd invented the ballot paper, the question was, well, the paper, it has to be filled in. Where's it going to be filled in? And isn't this going to be quite slow? So... It's not quite clear who came up with this, but it seemed to have been um, through the Victorian Parliament the idea of, of, a, of a row of polling booths, which is now the standard way in which people vote across the world with those card- we have cardboard or um, polling booths. Um, so that was invented. Uh, and, you know, that, that became known as the Australian ballot. It's pretty awesome it and is. surprising. <laughs> and it, it was a sort of practical innovation, you know, this yeah. is a practical problem, like giving all the men all the men getting the vote, that's one thing. Then how how is it actually going to be made practically to happen? Yeah. Then the practical innovators got to work and and uh yeah, so that, I think that's quite quite an achievement really (laughs) it seems like it's a society unencumbered by tradition i guess they've kind of decided to reject some elements of the british empire which they don't that doesn't work for them yeah well it's it's also that that in um britain there's been you know elections of, of some form or other for a long time and there was already a sort of infrastructure there where um the where local administrators ran the elections now in um, South Australia, for example, um, 
there weren't any local administrators. There was the police, uh, just. The, um, so uh, government officials started running elections because that's another thing that Australia, if you like, pioneered is the idea of a an impersonal, uh, non-partisan um, government officials running elections. And, I mean, that's another thing that makes our elections so fair, I think, and transparent. Yes, and we see still today so many issues with the American voting system, particularly the fact that it's now electronic and also the fact that it is controlled or run by non... um, Well, they're not necessarily impartial. They are partisan to an extent. Yes, and the other difference with America is that in... in, When we federated, um, it was a big... commitment of the federation fathers that the vote for the commonwealth elections would be the same on the same conditions across the country whereas what happened in the united states was that the states the state parliaments or the state legislatures controlled the voting laws for who would vote for congress and the president and what have you um and so they weren't uniform and then those laws get manipulated partly because the um the the people running the elections are themselves elected so they tend to then be partisan whereas we have government you know public servants running our elections Mm. and i was really interested in how gender plays into so many different aspects of this debate um one that was very surprising was the talk of um an open ballot was claimed, well, that was an English um, approach, and, and they said that a secret vote would be un-English um, and that it would also be unmanly yes. because secrecy was for women. And it somehow has uh, relevance to the Catholic confessional and the feminine dependence of Catholics on their priests. Yeah, well, this was when it, it like the secret ballot didn't come in in England until a couple of decades after it had come in in Australia. So there were arguments being mounted against it. What what was happening in... Um, what had happened in England was that the the franchise had been extended in 1832 and so lots of tenants uh, and tenant farmers were now able to vote. Now, the landlords wanted to obviously keep control. Um, you know, the, the landed aristocracy and gentry wanted to keep control of their parliamentary positions. So they were because the tenant farmer would have to go up and say aloud who he voted for, the bailiff would know whether he'd voted for the gentry, the Lord's candidate or not. Mm. So the secret ballot was was then taken up by radicals as a way of trying to, you know, weaken the power of the the landed gentry. Um, So these... And the argument was, you know, that the straightforward, upright Englishman would say what he thought. And uh, so those... and those arguments, but they never really got much of a run in Australia. It, um, people, well, there, firstly, there wasn't a landed aristocracy in quite the same way. Um, but it, yeah, that, they were the arguments put against it. Yes. And one of the interesting elements of this story, and it's interesting because Australia is another kind of almost first, is um, women and getting the vote because men uh, had it, had the vote before women, or mm. at least white men had the vote before white women. Um, and so we saw women get suffrage in South Australia at the state level yes. first, which seems like South Australia tends to do everything first. Yeah. Um, and then we saw women eventually get the vote, white women, um, and they 
were just pipped at the post by New Zealand who yes. got there, but we still claim a first in the sense that women got the right to vote and stand for Parliament at the same time, which was a world first. Yes. But I was surprised to read that um, it was actually by almost by accident or by luck that women got the right to stand for Parliament. Well, it was one of those uh, things that backfired. The opponents, the people who were arguing in the um, South Australian Parliament against women getting the vote, put in as an amendment that they should also be able to stand for Parliament. And they thought this was so absurd. This was not something the women had asked for. They thought this was such an absurd overextension that it would lead to the bill being thrown out and they badly miscalculated Mm. because actually it was passed. Uh, One other thing I was just going to say is the the legislation in South Australia and also in in Victoria didn't, wasn't just for white women or white men, Aboriginal men and women could vote in that, in that, those, um, those colonial, with that colonial legislation. It was with the passing of the Federal Franchise Act in 1902 that Aboriginal people uh, were not allowed to vote. Now, so that meant that some of them, there was actually a diminution of their rights at, yes. at the federal level. Yeah, they had some pre-existing rights. Yeah, well, they were able, there was no there was no race bar in the in, in some of that colonial legislation. Mm. Yep. And we certainly saw even in Victoria in in the 18, I think it was the mid 1800s, that um, when they opened it up to say anyone who was on the municipal roll and had a had a property could vote mm. and uh, women quickly took advantage of that loophole and in one election for the lower house in Victoria did actually vote. Uh, But then the men realised what they'd done and altered the legislation. So I thought that was also an interesting um, early part of when women could barely vote. Uh, But there are some really important women in this um, story and one of them is on a banknote and fair enough, she should be. She's a great Scottish woman, Catherine Helen Spence, who did many things, was obviously an intellectual in her own right and uh, she ran as a candidate, was the first ever candidate to run, um, to actually be part of that delegation who would form um, Federation and come up with the uh, Constitution she didn't win, unfortunately. Um, but you highlight her role in this, um, not only in terms of votes for women, but also um, legislative, uh, sorry, electoral innovation, because she was reading obviously quite widely and came across a, a review by John Stuart Mill, the great philosopher, who was referring to some work around uh, proportional representation yes. that she highlighted to no avail. Yes, she became a passionate proponent or advocate of proportional representation because she thought that that way the whole range of views that were out there in the electorate would get represented. You know, that um, at that stage things were all pretty much first past the post. So that meant that, that debate turned into just two positions and she thought that this would um, lessen the power of the major political parties, that there'd be a bigger range of uh, of views able to be represented in the parliament. Mm. And it is it does make a lot of sense. You can see why well, you would want to make sure. I think the explanation that I saw from you is that it's the one that most people could live with. 
in the end in terms of preferential voting? Well, no, preferential voting and proportional representation are a bit different. <laughs> well, they flow on from each they other sort of in do, terms yes. of I the mean, development of yeah. thinking. Preferential I mean, voting does at least give a chance for minor parties to stand. And so with preferential voting, yes, you, you end up with the candidate that's least disliked. But with proportional voting uh, or representation, you can end up with the sort of situation of the Italian parliament, you know, with three people in this party and four in this. And, and it, it, makes the, it can make stable government difficult. So there's always been that tension between proportional voting and stable government. Um, she came up... The person who she was reading wanted the whole of Britain to be, you know, the whole 600 and however many members of the... House of Commons to be elected on proportional representation, which would have been chaos. She came up with the idea of, of effectively multi-member electorates, a bit like what you, you ended up with the um, hair clerk system that there is in Tasmania. So if there was, say, 10 candidates in an electorate, you know, there would be some chance for different views to be represented. Mm. Yep. And so the development of um, the preferential system is something which is quite unique to Australia because um, the first past the post is quite common nowadays. It's probably the most popular. Um, So you highlight, I guess, two particular things that are elements of Australia's system that are quite unique, one being compulsory voting, the other being uh, preferential voting, as, as opposed to first past the post. Um, and the other, I guess, somewhat unique but probably less substantial um, feature is also voting on a Saturday. Yes. A weekend when most people, well, hopefully, a lot of people don't work. Um, but that certainly might influence the way things happen uh, if it's not on a Tuesday or a Thursday like some other countries. That's right. And, and going along with the Saturday voting is the very uh, easy um, arrangements that are made in Australia for absentee voting. So, you know, you can turn up at any polling booth in your state pretty well and vote, whereas in the United Kingdom, for example, you were registered to a particular polling booth, not just to an electorate, and so you're meant to go to that polling booth to vote. Now, you can have a proxy vote for you or you can arrange for postal voting, but if your train's delayed or something, you can't go and vote in London at lunchtime or you can't... You, it, it's rather rigid, and similarly in Ireland. Um, so from very early, like the late 19th century, there was easy absentee voting and that was being pushed by the Labor Party because the... Trade unions were signing lots of rural workers, you know, shearers and drovers and rouseabouts and carters and stuff, um, up to the unions, and they wanted them to be able to vote. And they wouldn't, they didn't necessarily, you know, live at home all the time. They might be out on the road. So easy absentee voting was something that Labor argued for very early and successfully. So that goes along with the Saturday voting that that the Australian. Um, electoral traditions are to try to make it as easy as possible for people to vote. Yep. And that's probably, I guess it's complementary to the compulsory voting element, isn't it? That's right. You're enabling people to do it. I mean, once you get compulsory voting, then you really have to enable it because you can't force, you know, make it illegal for people not to vote and then make it difficult for Mm. them. But 
So some people often have thought, sometimes it's been argued, oh, it's because of compulsory voting that we have easy absentee voting and Saturday voting. But it's actually the other way around. We had it all beforehand and it's part of the same commitment to wanting the majority of people to vote. Um, So we have, you know, remote voting booths and, and things. The Australian Electoral Commission puts a huge amount of effort and money into getting polling booths out there for everybody to be able to vote. Mm. Well, it needs to, given that we're a continent yes. and also those who are overseas. Yes, that's, yeah. yes. There's a great photo in the book of a polling booth. I think it's in Antarctica. Yes, oh, that's right. It's hilarious. <laughs> and there's a tent is the polling booth. <laughs> that's right. And a whole yeah. lot of people lined up in their fur, fur-trimmed uh, parkas. Yeah, it would be an interesting experience. I don't know... You wouldn't be able to have a democracy sausage on that occasion. Probably not. No. Um, So in terms of preferential voting, when did that really come about? That comes about after the uh, First World War and it's pushed for by farmers, essentially. Uh, The the battle lines were labour versus non-labour, but uh, a lot of... um, Farmers and people outside of the capital cities felt that their interests were just being swallowed up by a sort of city-based non-Labor party and so they wanted to be able to stand their own candidates. Now, if they did that, they risked splitting the non-Labor vote and Labor winning seats, which they would otherwise, you know, they might win on, you know, 40% might vote Labor, 30% for the Liberal candidate, 30% for the Farmers candidate and Labor would win. Uh, so basically the farmers, a farmers party, the, the early country party pushed for preferential voting mm. and, they, and, you know, changed the landscape of Australian politics and led to the formation of the coalition. Yes, well, it seemed like it worked out well uh, because the nationalists won 37 seats at the 1919 election. Um, the farmers' candidates got received 11 and the Labor Party only 26 seats. Well, the, partly the the reason that Labor did so badly was that it had split during the First World War over conscription. So mm, that Billy period, yeah, that period, you know, after the war and the the twenties, a pretty dire period for Labor politics. You know, after it had had this wonderful first decade and been the, Australia's first majority government in nineteen ten, mm. it it was split asunder by the war. Yes. No, it was pretty horrific. But it um, was it was basically the farmers that mm. that, are at, that gave us preferential voting. Mm. It's an interesting legacy to have, isn't yeah. it? Yes. So, well, it's, you know, that it it was to stop vote splitting, really. Mm. Yeah. I'm speaking with uh, Emeritus Professor Judith Brett from La Trobe University, and she has a book out from Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. Um, so Australia has a long history of different uh elements of our electoral system kind of emerging and being innovated such as what we've just been discussing preferential voting um when did we make things compulsory for australians and was there any um was there general acceptance of this as being an important part of democracy and what were the debates like at the time well it was 1924 when it was introduced on a private members bill the debates um one of the things i found interesting in doing the 
research for this was that there was almost nobody arguing against it. There were pre- people, when they argued against it, there'd be practical problems. Oh, you know, it's going to be too hard to enforce. Um, how will you, pr- you know, it's, it's just too difficult. There was problems with getting the uh, state roles and the electoral, you know, the Commonwealth roles lined up. They were j- So when it, when it was introduced... It was just widely accepted. The turnout obviously increased. It had a big... Um, women's voting increased a lot. So that, so that when most of the pressure groups, you know, the farmers' groups, the women's groups, the trade unions, were all arguing for compulsory voting. Um, the women's groups thought that that this would make clear to women that they, that they needed to educate themselves about politics. So they were pretty much in support of it. So you know, it's um, it's been pretty widely accepted, and and in all the surveys that have that have been done in the post-war period, the majority of Australians support compulsory voting. Mm. I was interested that some people suggested that um, women are conservative voters, and thereby if they need if women vote um, and they vote and they're fifty percent of the population, for example, then the conservative vote's going to go up. Yes, I mean, that was something I found interesting that I'd always thought that that um, compulsory voting was supported for sort of radical progressive reasons, that it would mean that the poor and the marginalised would be, you know, would vote and hence that that would be, mean we'd be more likely to have progressive politics because policies because the politicians would have to take their interests into account. But I came across very early on, particularly in the 19th century, the arguments being put, the compulsory voting was a good thing because it meant that the people who were not the zealots, you know, that you didn't want the partisans of the right and left being the only people who came out, but you wanted the sort of the sensible centre, we would now call it, um, the respectable conservative people who weren't that interested in politics to vote and that they would moderate the sort of passionate commitments of the left and the right. And I think with what we've seen in the United States um, over the past couple of decades uh, and the polarisation that's that's now infected their politics, you can see the cogency of that argument. I think that's why um, people have become more interested in compulsory voting because it, it, is a, it is a moderating influence and it means that the political parties don't have... Because they don't have to get out the vote, that, that they don't have to sort of... Um, crank up the emotional investment in their positions and you don't get as much um, playing on fear and grievance as you might otherwise. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see. I mean, Australia as an electorate has clearly evolved over time in terms of the ways that we're voting, but the centre has always been the majority. Well, the centre's where the elections yeah, are won, you know. Exactly, and fought over where yeah. parties are clever um it's surprising though the liberal party at the moment don't necessarily see themselves as center uh, at least their base isn't center they're looking more towards a conservative end at the moment with their policies well i think that um scott morrison is trying desperately to drag the the beast back into the center because uh, certainly under Abbott and under, you know, if you look at people like Dutton, if we take an issue like climate change, for a long time the Liberal Party's parliamentary position has been quite out of alignment with general public opinion. Um, the, so, as, and as it was, as we saw on same-sex marriage. So, um, in a way, compo- that 
in the United States, that wouldn't be such a problem because that would motivate, for example, a religious base to come out and vote and the, the more indifferent people would stay at home. But here that doesn't work like that. Mm. And so they're really paying, I think, for the fact that they've allowed the the more extreme voices in their party to be so loud um, and that's alienated a, the, the sort of fairly mainstream middle-of-the-row supporter. Mm. Yes, and um, it's interesting also that, like, we talk about compulsory voting and the fact that it's been around for quite a while now hmm. um, and it's really solidified in our rituals and our identity and you um, highlight the fact that this is really actually an, another essential part of Australia's identity equal to the Anzac legend that we trot out regularly to talk about how we were born, you know, on the shores of Gallipoli. Um, but the, the, this is actually really important to our identity as well. Yeah. In what ways do you think it is? Well, I, look, I guess, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot more drama and and human heroism involved in stories of war. And so the stories of electoral reform are sort of quiet and they're a bit dull and they're a bit boring. But I just, I guess, wanted to say, well, Australians, this is also something that is, um, that's shaped the people who we are um, and our egalitarian traditions because, you know, it's basically our, our electoral system is an egalitarian one. And I was going to say you, you, before when you mentioned about Saturday, I think the Saturday voting is quite important as well because it allowed election days to become a bit of a community festival. And I think, you know, that's, been, that's where the democracy sausage part of the title yeah. came in. Yeah, that's so true. Well, I was going to say, you know, do you have any rituals that you engage in on election day? Well, I go to election night parties sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> I want to stay home and I'm just glued to the television if it's yeah. going to be too close. You know? No, it is quite um, nerve-wracking. I, I make cupcakes do with you? my sister <laughs> and make faces of all the different political commentators or, you know, I had a, I used to have a Kerry O'Brien cupcake, which I really liked. We used to, like, make them out of snakes and Smarties. So, yeah, there's a few election traditions but obviously the sausage sizzle is up there at the moment and um having all these vegetarian versions is also That's quite right. great uh for me for example but one of the other elements which makes me think that it's very central to our identity is the fact that um the postal vote that was not compulsory it was voluntary to engage in a postal vote on the issue of same-sex marriage the actual you highlight the fact that the voting levels were very high yes and I think that's that's two reasons. One is our habit of compulsory voting, and the second is the really brilliant campaign that the same-sex marriage activists ran around that. Mm. And in a way, I mean, people have said this. It was a bit turned out to be a bit of an own goal for the Liberal Party because a lot more young people actually got themselves on the roll. I mean, yes. it's also compulsory in Australia to be on the electoral roll, but you know, people you still have to register. You st you've still got to get yeah get yourself registered mm. and um i think that you know it was a big increase and there's just last week the australian electoral commission said that the role going into this year's election is the biggest that australia's ever had i mean in the sense that it's the the most the highest proportion of eligible voters are on that role it's up at about 96 percent fantastic wow. that is pretty impressive yeah yeah do you have any sense of the level of people who might tick their name off and just you know register a donkey vote like is that a you know is there a proportion 
of um, Australians that tend to do that? There's, um, well, look, there's the donkey vote, which is the people who just go one, two, three, four, five down um, the ballot paper. The um, There's a surprisingly small number of protest votes, that is of deliberately spoiled votes where people yeah. write swear words or put in a totally empty ballot paper. That's actually surprisingly small. Mm. So probably quite a bit of the donkey vote may be to do with literacy issues or ignorance. Um, but on the whole, people take the vote, pretty, you know, put in meaningful votes. Yeah. Well, it was interesting at the last federal, no, state election, um, and I was in line and obviously all the um, electoral officers need to let people know about the preferential voting and the fact that below the line you now only need to number, you know, yeah. not that many boxes, which is great if you don't like numbering all of them. Not I number all of them anyway. Um, but a lot of people were still not really aware of the fact that it was much easier to vote below the line and yeah. ha- still preference. Yeah. And look, it, it takes a little while for that yeah. sort of information to come out. I mean, I I don't go... I didn't number all the boxes. I just... I think I did 12. I think that's what Anthony Green recommended. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the other day, what are we going to do without Anthony Green if he decided to retire one day? That's right. It's going to be a worry. I hope he's, been, I hope he's you know, quietly mentoring someone on the side. <laughs> because we'll be lost um but yes it is always really great to have the abc as such a useful yeah. source of information on these issues that's right he his blog is terrific yeah. and, and you know some of the the detail on vote counting particularly um in in the senate and is is incredibly technical mm. Uh, I have to say, you know, and a bit eye-glazing, really. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Um, But you do have uh, endorsements from Anthony Green. That's right. Annabelle Crabb and Waleed Ali. So I'm pretty sure you've made it in terms of, you know, a highly engaging, accessible, not eye-glazing approach to this issue. That's good because I wanted to to be a bit of a story, you know? Yes, yeah. To keep the readers interested. humanity in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really great and um, definitely commend you on this, Judith. You're a great historian and writer. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, and I just love everything you're doing at the moment. So thank you for coming in and chatting about this. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor of Politics, Judith Brett, who is uh, from La Trobe University, and she has written a book from Secret Ballot, to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting and her previous book to that was The Enigmatic Mr Deacon which is a massive tome and it is also highly engaging and fascinating and won the 2018 National Biography Award and those are both out through text publishing in Melbourne. You're tuned in to 3RRRFM. It is nearly 20 past 11 and uh, this show goes until noon. So I'm very pleased to have with me on the phone from Macquarie University, Associate Professor Michelle Arrow. And she's written a book called The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia. And uh, it is a really excellent book. And uh, Michelle is a historian, so she brings a historian's wonder and rigour to this subject. And I welcome Michelle now. Hi there. Hi. 
Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you on the show. And um, I was really delighted to come across this book and also more delighted to see that you had a significant focus on women in the 1970s. And as we heard from that uh, very brief clip before with Jermaine Greer, you know, in the 1970s, it's such an important um, moment for relationships and women in particular and the way that they see themselves and their role in society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really at the heart of this sort of story of the way that personal uh, issues become placed on the political agenda is the women's liberation movement, of course. That's really at the heart of this story. And kind of one of the things I wanted to trace was to kind of weave in the the story of women's liberation with the broader national story of Australia Mm. in the 1970s and kind of look at it in the context of national politics. You know, kind of how did women's liberation go from being a movement that was... You know, a small small groups of women in different parts of Australia into something that became really sitting, you know, influencing government and influencing policy by the mid to late 1970s. Yeah, and it's very refreshing to see um, women's liberation and women's quote-unquote issues being made part of the mainstream because often the way it's treated in um, politics and history is that it's kind of separated out as a chapter or, you know, a, a special women's subject or topic. Exactly. And really, when you look at the history of particularly the Whitlam movement, say, which is one of the main, of course, you know, the, the, the big political moment of this period is women is just sort of sat off to one side in one chapter. And maybe there's a paragraph on gay and lesbian rights in there, too. Mm. And what I wanted to do is kind of upend it and say, what happens if we look at the story of the 1970s through the prism of gender and sexuality? Like, how does our view of that decade change if we do it that way? Yes, well, it definitely changes, but it seems like it's far more realistic and comprehensive rather than being quite dry and economic and masculine. Yeah, I was really keen to try and bring in the stories of ordinary people's response to these transformations. You know, that there is, Jermaine Greer is in the book and Dennis Altman is in the book and, you know, there are a number of high-profile women there and people who are part of activist movements. But what I wanted to also do is kind of say, well, what's the impact of the Whitlam government on a person who was, you know, um, living in suburbs in Sydney and how did that, you know, kind of change their lives and the sort of looking at politics in a very holistic way, I suppose, Mm. Um, and sort of getting our idea of of what happens in the 70s away from strictly an economic or a sort of political disaster story, which is the way (laughs) we think about Whitlam and the dismissal, to kind of say, actually, if we look at it in this different way, the picture is transformed. Yes, it is, yeah. we do tend to fixate on the constitutional crisis and the involvement of our Governor-General rather than, you know, what was really happening for people. Yeah, I think that's right. And, I mean, you know, I also in the book I have a, a moment where, you know, Whitlam's Women's Affairs Advisor actually warned Whitlam before the dismissal. She's like, he's going to sack you. <laughs> she kind of had a personal relationship with John Kerr. But wow. he, Whitlam was like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. So, again, one of those things, the ways that gender sort of plays out she says if I'd been a man and a political staffer maybe he would have listened to me Mm. you know and maybe he would have taken me more seriously so you know again not just the sort of what was life like on the ground but actually that the ways people thought about gender reshaped the way that politics you know the way the dismissal sort of might have played out it's amazing really isn't it (laughs) (laughs) it It was a really great little detail it was like oh okay yeah that should be a headline in a newspaper one day 
Um, it has been. Yeah. I've done interviews about it in the past, but I just wanted to bring that back into the story. You know, it seems like a, a nice little detail. To yeah. So one of the elements of your research for this book, which um, is really interesting and I thought maybe we should highlight that at the mm. outset, is the fact that you spent, like, obviously probably many months um digging through archives but particularly the national archives and of course they are located across australia so they have different offices um but you you weren't in the canberra one you were in one based in new south wales and there was um this great uh set of documents and it must have been huge i'm guessing uh around a royal commission that had been established by the Whitlam Labor government. Uh, it's called the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. Um, I didn't realise we had that as a Royal Commission. Um, were you? How did you even stumble across that fact yourself? Yeah. Look, it was. It's one of those things that people forget that it happened, and people don't. You know, there was so much going on in the Whitlam period that I think people just, what Royal Commission and Human Relationships? That's a small subject, you know, just mm. add that to the pile of things that they were go that they were doing. So I read about the Royal Commission in a sort of a few paragraphs in a big general history of Australia, and I was like, gee, that's interesting. Has anyone written about that? And I found that not really anybody had done anything on it, apart, part, par, partly because the um, archives are, you know, the, the archives, the National Archives are closed for 30 years after the material's created. So I was sort of investigating it at the very moment where the material could be read by researchers you know the 30-year period had passed and so um what i did was spend months in the national archives in the sydney branch and one of the things that this royal commission did it was this inquiry into what they you know human relationships in medical social sexual family aspects of human relationships initially it started as an inquiry into abortion um, there was an attempt to pass law reform on abortion that, sh- that failed. And in that debate, they kind of couldn't work out even basic things like how many abortions were happening in Australia every year. And so they thought, let's have an inquiry that can answer that question as long as, you know, alongside a whole lot of other questions. And so the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was the result. It had two female commissioners and one male, um, a journalist, a judge and an um, Anglican priest. Um, and for months, they travelled around the country, they accepted submissions from members of the general public as well as from activist groups and social, you know, organisations about those questions. You know, they had um, posters in around the place that you could see that said, what do you think? Tell us what you think about all these different aspects of human relationships and write to us. And people did. They turned up to open hearings and they gave some, you know, testimony in public. They wrote submissions to the Royal Commission. Uh, They um, turned up to open house hearings where you could just turn up and tell a brief story, you know, about yourself. You didn't necessarily have to make a whole submission. They were very keen to hear from lots of different people. And all of those submissions, all the written, you know, the typed submissions from members of the public are were kept and boxed away at the end of the inquiry and put in the National Archives. And so I think I was probably the first historian to look at all of them, Mm. read everything from beginning to end. And they're organised by topic, so you can open up, here's the file of abortion submissions, here's the pile of submissions on divorce or whatever. So what was intriguing and, and sort of appealing to me as a historian was that you could kind of use those to get at what ordinary people were thinking about the social change of the 1970s and that seemed to me to be a great gift you know as a historian a great kind of amazing thing that you could find 
And so that's really the spine of the book is kind of all the research that I did in those submissions and looking at the ways that, say, women were writing about how they felt about motherhood, how gay men and lesbians felt about being gay in a society that was still remarkably homophobic. Um, people who were talking about antenatal education, sex education, people who wrote about divorce, people about loneliness. Like, there's, it's kind of amazing how much stuff is in there and how many things, different ways you could approach it. But it seemed to me that if we're thinking about the 1970s as the decade when the personal became political, and of course that's one of the slogans of the women's movement, that this was a way of thinking about that in a slightly different way, in a way that people who were not always part of organised social movements were responding to this idea that the personal was political because they were saying, I'm writing to you not just to tell you that I'm miserable or that I'm happy or whatever, but that I'm putting that on the political agenda. I want you to know about it so you can do something about it. Mm. And that, to me, seems like something new that's happening in the 1970s, that there's a range of social issues that people are responding to, and that government is more receptive to hearing about it too, which I think is an important part of the story. It's a really interesting, and also, the ch- like you talk about it being the spine of the book, it obviously is a big feature, and mm. um, you go into a lot of detail, and I love the different details about it and how it was seen at the time, and also how it was referenced at the time. Mm. Like, it, it was initially reported as an inquiry into sex or family life, and as yeah. you say, its nickname in activist circles was the fucking commission. <laughs> Um, you said even Whitlam called it the sex commission. How much sex was there? I mean, not obviously Uh, literal sex, but how much of an open discussion was there about relations and particularly sexual relations? Mm. Quite a bit, I think. I mean, you know, one of the, as I said, it, it started as an inquiry into abortion. And so that obviously, you know, has a quite clear relationship to sex. They were really keen on thinking about sex education and alleviating ignorance. You know, education was really framed as the thing that could fix everything. And so there's quite a lot of discussion around sex in relation to sex education. There's also quite a bit of discussion of sex in relation to violence, actually. So Mm. domestic violence, rape and sexual violence. Um, You know, a lot of people are writing about how they didn't understand what sex was, um, how they had their experiences of sex had been violent and unpleasant in a lot of ways too. Um, There's also discussion around age of consent um, and prostitution and those kinds of things. So it's really kind of considering a number of ways that the law and morality and social mores kind of dealt with sex and managed sex. And, And the 1970s is obviously a period where a lot of those mores are being challenged and undone. Um, I think one of the interesting cases is the way that gay and lesbians approach the Royal Commission because initially I don't think the Royal Commissioners anticipated that gay and lesbian people would present submissions but gay and lesbian activists were really clever and kind of went we're going to you know target this Royal Commission we're going to make submissions and we're going to put that issue on the political agenda through the Royal Commission. So it's a really broad-ranging sort of sense of what sex was, but it's also one of the reasons that the Royal Commission, when its report is released, it makes 500 recommendations. Mm. Very big, <laughs> sweeping kind of set of reforms. One of those was around decriminalisation of homosexuality. They recommend um, an equal age of consent. There's a whole bunch of things in relation to sex, and that's the thing that sparks real furor amongst political conservatives around, you know, religious and morals groups. So, again, it becomes sort of seen as this sex report 
you know, when it's released. Even though actually that's not all of what it's about. There's actually a lot of things there that really don't necessarily have anything explicitly to do with sex. They're actually about the ways that people relate to each other and sex is obviously one of those, but it's not everything. Um, so my sort of sense of it is that this is a Royal Commission that is about investigating the ways that morality had changed and perhaps the law hadn't kept up with the ways that people were really living. You know, morals had changed and, and the ways that people thought about sex and relationships had changed. And there's a backlash against the idea that we could perhaps re review the law, we could perhaps rethink the way that we think about some of these practices. Mm. Um, you know, the reaction against the Royal Commission is, it really is uh, conservative and hysterical in some ways. It's a moral panic around the, the Royal Commission and its findings. Yes, and you highlight throughout the book some of the civil rights and civil society organisations mm -hmm. who were campaigning to change the laws in regards to homosexuality. Um, and you, I found this interesting that you highlight the fact that they weren't um, necessarily gay and lesbian rights activists. Yeah. They were really kind of approaching this from a legal standpoint of we yes. can't have morals in our laws like it you know yes. that that excessive government interference and moralizing over our citizens is not appropriate and so um, they didn't necessarily even see themselves as advocating on behalf of or for that particular group no that's right i mean one of the things is the famous kind of um a formulation that comes out of law reformers in the US and, and Canada and, and the UK is the sort of um, the state has no role in your bedroom. You know, the idea that, that, that the private sphere is a private place. And civil rights campaigners in the sort of late 60s, they're not presenting themselves as gay in public. They're like, we're not gay. We just think people deserve the right to be gay in private. But there's no sort of sense that um, being gay could be a public identity, that mm. being gay could be part of your individual identity, that being gay is something you do in private. And similarly with abortion campaigning in the 1960s, that some of the campaigns around abortion are sort of civil rights oriented. They're fronted by doctors. They're not fronted by women. So in both of those cases, as sort of 60s reform, the groups that are affected most directly by the law are not the ones who are at the front of the campaigns to change the law. Um, and, you know, they're there, of course, but they're not at the front. Whereas by the 1970s, the early 1970s even, you have the people that are most directly affected by these changes who want to be at the front, you know, who are at the front of these campaigns. Um, Campaign Against Moral Persecution, which is a gay organisation, Gay Liberation, of course, Women's Liberation. And they're using that strategy of, this is how this affects me. The personal is political because, you know, I can't be the way I want to be in private or public because you're oppressing my identity. So it's a really big change in the way that gay and lesbian groups are sort of seeing their relationship to the state and to privacy, really. You know, they're kind of saying, look, that private identity means nothing if I can't express it publicly. Mm. And similarly, when you just mentioned their abortion, um, mm. it wasn't at that point particular point women's rights groups saying you know it should be women's right to choose um and you know that wasn't 
the forefront of that part of the argument. It was, as you said, doctors saying, well, you know, it's a last resort. You have to be pretty desperate to need to seek an abortion or want one. Um, It is pretty shocking, really, that that's how that whole argument started out when people are arguing for abortions or the right to have an abortion. I know. It's really interesting to me that moment that it's it's basically in the late 60s, both campaigns that produced the the kind of clarification of the the legal position of of abortion were all about could doctors avoid prosecution it wasn't sort of about the woman's right to have an abortion it was very much about um medicalizing that and sort of sitting that underneath the the kind of control of doctors Mm. um and in some ways that doesn't change hugely over the it's sort of the Menahit ruling and the Levine ruling kind of clarify the circumstances under which doctors can perform an abortion. Um, but it still isn't necessarily enshrined, as it is in the US with Roe v. Wade, as a right, a women's right to have an abortion. Yeah. And that's where it's interesting that some of these very recent decriminalisation campaigns, you know, in Queensland around abortion in South Australia at the moment, are so important because in some ways it's the unfinished business of the 1970s around, you know, access to abortion, I think. Yes, well, we move into the early 1970s and there are developments in uh, culture and particularly popular culture that you highlight, such as uh, magazines like Clio and Forum, which begin in 1972 and 1973. That's obviously also relevant now because we see Ita Buttrose is now the chair of the ABC, who was the editor of Clio. Um, But I was really kind of interested in the different approaches they took to uh, feminism or women's liberation as it was called and how I guess Cleo was saying we don't really want to tell you what to do or live your life or what kind of feminism is right or wrong which was also probably a smart move yeah (laughs) given the disparate groups yeah Well, I was interested in the fact that you highlight that there are so many different women's liberation groups and, uh, you know, they had different functions and different, you know, approaches to the way they advocated. And so there were groups that were quite um, radical and then there were other groups like the women's electoral lobby that were quite pragmatic and focused in their attention. Um, And I was, you know, I actually know Eve Marlab, I didn't even realise. Yeah, she was the founder of it. Um, she's yeah. a very impressive lady. Um, but yeah, I, could you tell us a bit about the women's electoral lobby because that yeah. does move into politics. That's right. I mean, one of the things that happens in, in you know, it's in relation to the 1972 election, I think, is by 72 people can sniff that there's change in the wind. And I think women were very keen, inspired partly by an American example, to get their issues on the political agenda in a new way. You know, I think women had been regarded for a long time in Australian history as just, well, they'll vote the way their husbands vote, you know, not not as having a sort of distinct set of issues that might concern them. So the Women's Electoral Lobby uh, forms in early 1972 and their genius, their strategy, was that they got women in pairs to go out and interview all the candidates in their electorate on issues of concern to women. So they would kind of go and ask all the candidates, what do you think about access to abortion, contraception, should there be a luxury sales tax on the pill, all these questions. And, of course, the answers were very widely reported. Um, It got great publicity for the women's electoral lobby as a cause, but it also trained these women on how to lobby, how to meet candidates, how to be political, you know, in that way. And so certainly Labor thought that 
the women's electoral lobby had helped them get elected, I think, in certain key seats. So it starts a process, I think, where Australian feminism is regarded sort of internationally for having a kind of pragmatic reformist character right from the very beginning. There's women's liberation, there's groups that don't want anything to do with the state. They're not interested in in working with the state. But the women's electoral lobby see an opportunity for women to achieve quite significant sort of policy shifts because they had this influence um, and because they were raising these issues and making those personal issues political issues in in 72. Um, So they continue, of course, to do all that work. And I think it also lays the foundation for Whitlam appointing a women's women's affairs advisor um, in his office. Uh, Elizabeth Reid, who gets the job, is the first women's advisor to a national political leader anywhere in the world when she's appointed in 1973. Partly that's, of course, because he has no female MPs in his first, um, you know, first government. So it's important, I think, to be responsive to women's needs in other ways. But it's interesting because it does kind of put women's political issues on the political agenda in a way that they hadn't really been there before. And it's interesting that a group has been formed just this year called Women Vote who are kind of saying they're doing the same thing. They want to kind of raise women's issues on the political agenda and it's like, well, actually, that's quite an old strategy, you know, that's been around for a very long time um, through the women's electoral lobby. So fascinating that it becomes a big news story in 1972 and, of course, some MPs score very well. Whitlam scores really you know, incredibly well. There was the story was that w- William McMahon, who was the prime minister at the time, gave the survey to his secretary <laughs> to hmm. fill out. You know, so again, sort of not quite sniffing the wind and not quite working out that you know there was something new going on in politics. But yeah, it's a really interesting part of the story. I think it is interesting, and it, like the fact that so many um, candidates didn't even really have a formed position on many of these issues because yeah. it had never come up as a political it had issue. Never occurred to them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, you know, most politicians now, I think, would probably at least pay lip service to the idea that they thought that those issues were important. In 72, lots of, of the candidates are just like, I don't know, I don't care, you know. <laughs> exactly. Really yeah. And, well, it, it highlights your point that you interspersed during, throughout this book, which is the fact that um, what was personal and was seen as largely a private matter for mm. individuals became political and part of government and government yeah. intervention. Yes, and governments are kind of forced to respond to a whole bunch of issues that really hadn't been front of mind before. And, you know, sort of the Royal Commission is a good dramatisation of that, but in some ways the Women's Electoral Lobby is another really good example of, like, oh, okay, there's all these things that we have to take into consideration that we haven't really thought about before. And the ways that something like the women's movement in that way manages to sort of reshape the way politics works in in sort of subtle ways, I think. So, you know, we ignore these issues around gender when we're thinking about broader political questions at our peril because they actually Mm. have some really interesting things to tell us. Yeah, Yeah, and when um, Gough Whitlam won that uh, election in 1972 and he was waiting for all the results to be tallied, you um, highlight the fact that he actually became quite... Um, impatient and secured approval for a two-man ministry with his deputy Lance Barnard Uh, and so that was so that they could really hit the ground running so to speak and start making changes immediately and you highlight some of the changes that they make 
very quickly. Um, some non-gender related, such as giving diplomatic recognition to communist China and promising independence to Papua New Guinea, um, they ended national service, pardoned all draft defaulters, uh, which of course is relating to the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. released imprisoned protesters, uh, but they also lifted the sales tax from the contraceptive pill, reopened the equal pay case, which was before yeah. the Arbitration Commission. Um, and what was really interesting, I um, was fascinated by is that he briefed Mary Gordon, um, who yeah. was a barrister and later sat on the High Court to argue for equal pay for work yeah. of equal value. It's pretty impressive yeah, to know. just start, get straight onto it. Exactly. And it was a really important, I think it was about saying to people who had supported him, you know, I'm, I'm doing things for you already. And I think the Labor Party... Had, it had taken the Labor Party a long time, I think, to shake off its sort of trade union, male-dominated image. And, you know, that change is slowly happening in the 1960s as they're drawing in progressives and, you know, people of the new middle class and stuff like that. But 72, those two very early legislative reforms were a way of saying, we recognise you mm. and we are going to advocate for you. And so that's really part of the sort of longer transformation of the ALP too, which is so interesting. That's sort of part of the story this book tells, I think. The way that the two parties work out, how are they going to accommodate this politics of gender and sexuality? Yeah. And so in we kind of reach a bit of a... I'm going to have to bypass a lot of the Whitlam years because we're running out of time, but people can go back to the book and look into more detail. Um, but in 1975, we know a big thing happens, which is the dismissal. Um, but a lot of other things happened in that year that tend to have gotten missed or bypassed or even bypassed at the time by their own politicians because of all the drama that was happening and also that the economy had such a significant downturn. Like, as you highlight, there was... um, Was it stagflation? Yes. Yeah. So So, this idea of high unemployment and high inflation, nobody thought the two could happen at the same time, but, of course, it proved to be the case in 1974, which is a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Um, But they were all relying on Keynesian rationality and logic to work. Yes. And, of course, by 1974, it is not working. And that's, you know, that's really what... Apart from the scandals, you know, there are lots of things mm. that are going wrong with the Whitlam government by late 1974-75, but certainly the failure of that economic orthodoxy and the end of the long boom is sort of its curtains, really, for, for the government at that point. Yeah. Yes, and you highlight that there are some major developments, like um, when they had the, the next election in 1974, there was a major childcare policy that they yes. um, had, which Elizabeth Reid played a massive role in that kind of got butchered and then um, gutted in terms of funding. So there were many issues with that. But also that the Royal Commission's recommendations and report kind of got glossed over. Mm. I was pretty disappointed to hear that given how much effort went in. I know. It's it's a pretty... I mean, it's the Royal Commission is one of the victims of the dismissal, really, because um, Fraser comes in and sort of has a razor gang and wants to cut lots of stuff, you know, Rain, rain government spending in, so he cuts the Royal Commission short by 12 months, says it has to report a year earlier, 
So they're all still doing hearings, you know, around this time. And there's reports that they couldn't even pay their phone bill in February 1976, you know. And so it all becomes very uncertain what's going to happen. And so the Royal Commission is cut short and then it's reporting early. And then it kind of, when they release their final report, it ends up being leaked or parts of it get leaked. So it is used as a political weapon, really, Mm. in 1977. So it's all a bit of a... Sad story, and it's kind of part of the broader, what I kind of would call sort of backlash politics in the late 1970s, where, you know, the Fraser government is trying to work out how do they come to terms with all this, and in some ways they end up scapegoating, you know, unemployed people and single mums get hassled, and, and, you know, a lot of government services that had only just been funded in the sort of mid 1970s like women's refuges the funding future for those things is by no means certain in the late 1970s so one of the things that happens in the late 70s is a lot of the new stuff that happens that recognises this new politics around gender is sort of uncertain and in some cases it's wound back in the late 1970s early 80s Yes. So it's a bit of a bleak part of it towards the end of the decade, I think. Well, yeah, you can't unfortunately rewrite history in this case because it actually <laughs> happened. Um, but, but it is a very engaging way to write about it um, and it's also, I think, very balanced. Um, but one of the things that's so important at the moment is things like single mothers and obviously motherhood came up mm. a lot rightfully so um and the single mother benefit was something which had a huge impact as did things like um making tertiary education free for women um and so we're seeing you know at the moment that this kind of like penalties for being a single mother in terms of our welfare system but whitlam um and the way that he approached single mothers was entirely different Yes, it was. I mean, the Supporting Mothers Benefit was a really crucial um, initiative to allow women who were either pregnant and unmarried mothers to keep their children. You know, I mean, adoption and and the sort of um, forced relinquishment of, of babies is one of the things that, of course, and we know because of the apology to, you know, relinquishing mothers and, and their children, that that had enormous adverse social impacts and so that was sort of designed I think to try and help mothers who were not supported by a husband to live with some dignity and independence and again living without a male breadwinner I think Australian society had been so structured around the idea of the male breadwinner and women well you didn't need to give them equal pay because they're living with a husband anyway and so you know it just assumed female dependence and the supporting mother's benefit is part of sort of saying women don't necessarily have to be dependent on a man, but the state can step in and, and do that if, if they, you know, need it. Um, and the other part of your question, oh, was the, sorry, there was the Supporting Mothers Benefit and... Uh, tertiary Education for Women uh, right, boosting, yeah, women's engagement in yes. the workforce and other things. Exactly. And one that was really one of the big, uh, if we think about, you know, I think in some ways the, the history of that making tertiary education free was thought to benefit the working class and I think probably the analysis suggests that who it really benefited were women more than say working class people more broadly was that actually it was mothers and women more broadly who really benefited from that opening them up up of tertiary education you see lots of mums with kids going into higher education and you know going back to study after having children and I think it had a very significant long-term um, impact on Australia. And as you say, it opened up careers to women that may not have been possible beforehand. 
Absolutely. And it also meant mm. that, you know, you highlight the fact that mature age women, you know, who had yeah. children were mothers actually then decided to go back and study and, yeah. you know, do amazing things. Yes, exactly. And, you know, there's interesting stuff around they were forming childcare collectives on campus and, you know, bringing new kinds of politics. And that's when women's studies at university really flourishes because it's partly around all these women going back into university and kind of rediscovering the world, you know, through feminism. Yeah. Michelle, I wish I could talk to you for hours because I just (laughs) am loving it. Obviously, you have a great subject to work with, but you've also um, put it together in such a way that it makes it just so um, fascinating and very much a joy to read. Oh, good. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. Yeah, no, I absolutely mean it. Yeah, it was not even close to um, difficult. It was so great. I had about 27 pages worth of notes. So unfortunately, (laughs) we won't get to all of them. But I highly recommend this book. And I hope that uh, people can also head along to um, the event you've got on in Canberra on Thursday, because I know we have quite a few Canberra listeners. Yeah, that would be great. We'd love to see you there. There's still some tickets available. So I'm in conversation with Frank Bongiorno um, and signing some books as well. And Hugh McKay will be there to officiate. So it's a big happy family. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Michelle, uh, for joining me. And thank you and congratulations. Thank you so much, Amy. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I've been speaking with Michelle Arrow. She's an Associate Professor in Modern History at Macquarie University and she's written a book called The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia and it's out through New South Books and it is, as I said, a really engaging read, um, really great. And just, I mean, a lot of people will have lived through the 70s um, but, you know, even for those people it brings up things they may have forgotten or didn't even know about so um yeah have a look if you are interested in reliving or perhaps revisiting a time when you weren't here uh and obviously it was a pretty radical time cool time to be around i I think having not experienced it i wish i did i'm amy mullins and you've been listening to the uncommon sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.